0: Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 241 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Monday, August 21st, 2023. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm
1: Steve Vladek. Bobby, happy first day of school.
0: Happy first day of school day, my friend. Seriously.
1: Uh, what, you had is a what, good one. I had a great first day of Did school. Did you even
0: tell it was the first day of school?
1: Um, well, by dint of how many people were in the building. True. True uh, that. It literally took me ten seconds from walking into the building to run into all of my one L's from last year.
0: Uh, isn't that the best feeling on the first day back when you see
1: Yeah, everybody? except I was really sweaty, but you know. It's like a it's like hundred and forty seven degrees. For for folks who don't know, today was I think our forty fourth straight day over hundred here in Austin.
0: Something like that. We're supposed to, there was talk of tomorrow breaking the streak. Nope, I don't think it's gonna happening. happen.
1: No, nope, not, not happening, um, Bobby. This was this was my this was my nineteenth year. So it's my twenty second first day of law school, counting the three years I was actually a
0: student. So let's see uh, if we tack nineteen. Let, let, let's do this: twelve and sixteen and nineteen. So I think that makes you a thirty eighth grader or a 39th grader. So it's it, it's a
1: big number. It is a very uh, big number.
0: Well, congratulations! Uh, that milestone of twenty years in teaching is upon you. Seriously. And, uh, having crossed that milestone not that long ago myself, it's weird because I think you and I both still think we're the junior faculty guys. It's so
1: weird. I mean, the, the the faculty, what, the first distribution of the faculty appointment register, I gather, dropped today. And, you know, Bobby, not so long ago, you and I would have gone through that when we were on the hiring. I mean, you, you're still on the hiring committee, but when when either or both of us were on the committee, we would have gone through that and known a pretty hefty chunk of the folks in it personally. So and now it's like, uh... now,
0: like uh, I think I, I think I know their parents. Um, <laughs> <laughs> pretty soon that will be true. Uh, for those who don't know, the way that law faculty entry level hiring works for tenure track jobs is that the Association of American Law Schools curates a process where everyone who wants to be in you you pays your your fee, you pay a certain amount of money, and then you fill out sort of a, a standard form that kind of condenses all the key information for search purposes. Onto a single page, and it's got you know, it's got your your employment history and brief, your your educational history, where you've published, and a bunch of stuff about you know, if you were to ask me what my uh, ideal teaching package is, here's some, and here are things I'm also willing to teach, and it's all kind of put together into a giant compendium that gets released in a series of distributions and sent out to every law school's hiring committee, and it's it's really a very cool process. It's it's I think this is probably the most useful. I think this undisputably is the most useful thing that ALS does. Um, although the conference every January can be fun too. Um, and so that that I think dropped today. And so if anyone who's listening is in that pool, well, a let us know if you're yeah. listening to our show. Seriously. I think you we already you already have a couple of uh, points in your favor in our book. And uh, and B. And good, good luck. luck. Yeah. yeah. Seriously. Luck. It's you know.
1: I... Faculty hiring, I don't think anyone has, has perfectly figured out the faculty hiring process. There are features of the law school faculty hiring process that I find very problematic, but I do think at least some things have gotten better since you and I were in this position. You know, I think there's been a little more equity baked into the process, but-
0: Well, let's, let's unpack this. What was the worst thing or some of the things you hated about it, whether it's still there or not, from when you went through?
1: Um, I, you know, I had the sense, so I, let's see, I was in the far, in the fall of 2004. So gosh, 19 years ago.
0: I would um, really like to find that form, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, I I really would not.
1: <laughs> Someone somewhere probably has a copy of that form. Um, and, and, you know, that, at the, I mean, what was sort of, it was, you know, it, it, it redounded to my benefit, but like. Here I was, the fact that, like, I went to Yale and the fact that I had, like, you know, the right people in my reference line, right, probably meant that, like, schools took a careful look at me long before they looked at anything I had done or anything I had written, Um, right? And I think that, like, with the proliferation of fellowships, with the proliferation of what we call VAPs, visiting assistant professorships, like, there are so many more opportunities now for folks to actually burnish their credentials, like their genuine credentials for law teaching positions, even if they didn't go to Yale or Harvard or Stanford, what have you. And so, you know, I'm I'm much more fixated on the success stories of like former students of mine from American who are now, you know, very successful tenured professors at excellent law schools um, having gone to America. Like that's, you know, that would have been almost impossible 20 years ago. And I think, you know, some shifts in how the process works have really made it better, not not great, but better relative to to when, when we were babies.
0: The emergence of the visiting assistant professor pathway and the the expansion of it as a primary feeder has enabled it does create space to sort of uh, break in when you might not have been from you know the so-called right school before. On the other hand, it's really kind of upped the opportunity cost or the yes, absolutely. Yeah and that part I'd Oh still... no it's
1: not it's not a ma- it's not a magic bullet I mean and it puts you know it gives it, it provides opportunities only to folks who are in a position to take advantage of them right which you know yeah. tend to be folks without families um right I mean it's there it's not ideal but like I think you know it's at least better than a world in which like you know, your ability to get a teaching job could be made or broken based on like whether the right or wrong person was one of your references.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: But yeah. Um, speaking of first day of school, though, it's not, I mean, we also, you know, I, I think it might be cool if we have some prospective law students or new law students listening to the podcast as well. Maybe we can give them a couple of sort of quick, reflect, quick, big picture pieces of advice.
0: Absolutely. And shout out to all our own students who, seriously, um, book them. Yeah. <laughs> Woohoo. So let's see. First day of school. uh, You know, some of the things I talked about around orientation last week. uh, The thing I think probably gets said some, but not enough, is the importance of blocking out time. Ideally, maybe like it seems like a Sunday afternoon kind of thing to just put on your calendar so you get bumped and reminded about this to call family and friends and other loved ones. And, and make sure like on a routine weekly basis that you are staying in touch with people. Because those four months of the fall semester 1L year, you can you can accidentally isolate yourself from from people much more than you should. It'll be good for your soul if you stay in touch with your loved ones and your friends. And... You, stole, you stole
1: my first piece of advice. Was that it?
0: Well, hey. So is, my,
1: my, mine was a little – it was a little more generic, right? Mine was that like – people are going to throw things at you in law school. You're going to feel like the solution to everything is to work harder, is to spend more time. Like if only I did the reading again, if only I did more outlining, if only I did X. And what I said was it is really, really important um, your first year of law school to not forget taking care of yourself um, and to not forget mental health and to not sort of, you know, sacrifice sleep or self care or personal contacts or family relationships um, because you think that you don't have the time for them. Like Those are not extraneous to succeeding in law school. Those are important to succeeding in law school.
0: Exactly. It's the beginning of how you learn how to live your professional life as a lawyer as well, taking care of yourself and those who count on you and that you count on, and maintaining those relationships. At the end of the day, relationships are everything. Yep. So you have to tend to this. And, and, to- and
1: my second piece of advice, which is somewhat inconsistent with the first, is <laughs> other than that, right? <laughs> Be wary of generic advice about how to succeed in law school, right? Like, you know, I, I give a little speech, um, which I gave to the, 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 the one else. So at Texas, we have these things called societies, which are like sort of a way of dividing the first year class into social groups. Um, where this, I mean, I'm, you know. Which one body, are you
0: the advisor for?
1: I'm the advisor for Martinez. Um, I got traded. I was the green advisor last year. And I got traded from Green to Martinez for a player to be named later.
0: Oh, um, awesome. and a bucket of beer no doubt.
1: seriously. but um, but so what I told this is so so, so I'm the, so the idea is like you have a faculty advisor who's not one of your professors so that they can be like there to give you advice on you know and they're not grading you. And what I said to them was, you know I said um, you are gonna hear lots of things about how to succeed in law school, but they're all sort of generic. And you guys didn't get here by being generic. You all have different study habits. You all have different note-taking habits. You all have different reading habits. You all have different writing styles. And so you should have, you know, yes, you should listen when folks say, here are things that have worked, but you should also not assume that what works for person A is going to work for you and vice versa.
0: Absolutely. And to that, I will add this, uh, and I'll be really eager to, to know if this sounds consistent with your experience, Steve. Um, there are certain things about the, the first semester of law school that are, at least for some people, certainly for me, it was uh, particularly tough. And I think the uh, the pace at which you're expected to be able to absorb large amounts of reading and, and really extract relevant meaning from it, and then categorize it and recall it and you know be able to use that information, it, it's sort of a volume specific thing that's really mind blowing for some people. It certainly was for me, uh, especially early on. And it was clear to me that at least some of the people around me actually weren't having that much trouble doing that. They seemed to be, it's like they'd started further down the track for me. And how was I ever going to catch up? What I later on realized and what I've seen over 20 plus years of teaching ever since then is everybody comes in based on whatever with some position on that scale. And some people are really absorbing it well from the get go. Others really having trouble but there's this massive and predictable convergence that happens over the course of the fall semester. And, and oftentimes those lines transpose because you've got people who've been really working hard in response to perceiving that they uh, weren't maybe quite up, caught up with their classmates. And so by the time they get three and a half months into it, they're, they've really got great work habits and they're yep. really catching momentum and starting to believe in themselves and feeling the improvement. And you have a few people who started off thinking thinking they hit a triple because they started off on third base. And they may be coasting. They may not have the momentum going into home plate. And so my message for anybody starting off law school, for whom last week or this week or next is your first week, um, if you find like, you know what, it's pretty easy to keep up with this. Well, don't rest on your laurel. <laughs> your classmates who may not think it's so easy are going to be working really hard and they're going to yep. develop momentum. And if you're in a position where you think like, I I just don't know how I can keep up with this, man, I've seen it so many times. You will. You absolutely will get there. Just believe in yourself. Trust that if you stay with it, you are going to be right there with everybody else, completely caught up in those kinds of capacities by the time you reach the end of the semester. And indeed, you, as I said earlier, might have developed a few advantageous uh, habits along the way. So.
1: I mean, mean, the reality, I think, Bobby, is, you know, everyone I know, including just about all of my students, including me, right? Sometime in your first year, you're going to hit a wall. Um, And the wall could be physical, it could be emotional, it could be psychological, but, like, you're going to hit a wall. And the wall is like, you know, you're overwhelmed, you're overloaded, you're feeling too far behind, you're feeling like you just can't handle it. And it is worth saying that out loud so that when it happens, you don't feel alone, right? So that when that happens, you don't feel like, you know, this is some unique reflection upon your inability as a student or your unsuitability for law school. No, it is just an unfortunate but, you know, ubiquitous feature of the learning curve of law school that everyone gets over in their own ways.
0: And I would I would expand it beyond that and say that's that is life. And of course, especially in today's um, social media world. We all try to curate the the face we present to the world in a way that makes it look to outsiders like, well, that never happens to that person. They seem like they're happy and perfect all the time. Speak for yourself, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, is yes. Oh, are are oh are you on social media?
1: <laughs> some of some of us might be a little more. Um, how do I say un, uncensored, unfiltered on social media.
0: But you know, uh, here, so here you and I are. We're in we're in the middle of our careers. Things. You know, are obviously going very well for us. We are very blessed and lucky. Speak for yourself again, Matt. No, (laughs) (laughs) but but just before we started recording, as you know, we were we were kind of talking shop and just you know sharing the way friends do. And I was expressing how like today was actually in many ways there was all kinds of cool stuff today, first day of school and all that. And there were a couple of things that were horrible and made me feel awful. And that is just life. And so when you're when you're feeling as a law student that maybe something that happened in class or some exchange or some grade, whatever it is, makes you feel small, inadequate. you got to rise above that, believe in yourself, and keep going because everyone else feels that same way at some point. We just vary in how well we hide that. That's
1: right. And 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 I mean just to to tie everything together, and this is why it's important to have friends because you know you got to vent to me a little bit, like I exactly. uh, more often than not end up venting to you. Usually it's the other way
0: around. <laughs> it's a fair balance of trade, and that. I,
1: but yes, that's the, why the,
0: relationships the, matter.
1: <laughs> the um um I was gonna say the the Bobby cursing quotient, the BCQ was high tonight.
0: Wait, did, did I? cut? I didn't curse earlier, did I? <laughs>
1: Oh yeah, not at me, but there there were some oh, f bombs
0: before we were recording.
1: Oh yeah, not on the <laughs> yeah, podcast, right. no, no, but but like in our in our private conversation, there there may have been some f
0: bombs. For any, for anyone who's like kind of new to the show, and they're like, what are they even talking about? Right, I we're fifteen minutes were, in. At I some point, we're gonna to get to national security. Something. I'm sure it was a Donald Trump thing. I got real mad, and I I think I said something that probably was not a particularly strong curse word. I'm, I'm sure it was, but I. I felt very Victorian in my embarrassment about it.
1: <laughs> it was like the moment that I first cursed on Twitter. Like for years, I'd had like this very bright line that I will never curse on Twitter. And I finally crossed that line. And there are all these people who follow me who are like, oh, we've reached the singularity. Steve has cursed on Twitter. Um, so. oh, all right, should, we actually, should we pivot to some actual national security law?
0: Yeah, I guess we can um, Maybe we'll put in the show notes that you should skip ahead to the 15 minute or so part. <laughs> skip ahead to the end. <laughs> but you know, I'll, ne- I'll never, I, I sometimes feel like apologizing for just the frivolity, but none of that was frivolity. That was core business. Yeah, this is what, this is what, we, I mean, I, I think, listen, unless
1: this is literally the first episode someone is listening to of this podcast, you know.
0: This is, uh, you, well, you get what you pay for, that's for sure. Because
1: of, not in spite
0: of. Yes, there you go. Okay, uh-huh. so we actually do have a lot of national security activity to discuss, and yes,
1: uh, recurring member has recurred.
0: Yeah, there's it must be the it must be the pledge drive. <laughs> um, so we've got uh, we've got uh, Nashiri and Balul developments. We've got Trump Landia uh, Georgia edition. Um, I think probably that oh and and Shamari. So we have got a lot of uh cases and, and just, just, case,
1: just just in case just just in case you you missed the very beginning of this episode. It's August 21st, 2023, not August 21st, 2016, like, you know. Yeah.
0: Or, or for, you know, for some of these other ones, uh, you know,
1: 2006. <laughs> That we should do you know what they we should put, we should go back and record an episode as oh, if it was like you know like, so the day, like, like the day after the Supreme Court decided like Razul, Hamdi
0: and Padilla we should develop a time travel edition Seriously. series right. where we we try we, tra- we travel back in time but we don't remember anything so we try to you know encounter it for the first time.
1: It's like what the Supreme Court did. Oh my gosh, Bobby! This decision is going to revolutionize. There's Guantanamo's going to be closed in a year.
0: Oh, <laughs> Harry Truman is going to be so mad. <laughs> okay, um, and, and eventually we've got some good frivolity because we finally found something we've both seen or yes. read or watched. Uh, silo edition. Yes. It's Okay, uh, let's go I
1: down. To one, just one, one, quick, just silo note, just really quick, just just reality <laughs> yes. check. Yes. Okay. The visual aesthetic of 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 this of the series, right? Like I felt such a powerful total recall Arnold Schwarzenegger version,
0: mm-hmm. like callback. Subterranean. Yes.
1: post you know, post apocalyptic dystopian very brown lots of brown
0: signing signing but uh yeah
1: anyway all right well we'll come back to that all right um yeah. should we start with the sherry
0: yeah that let's let's do it so we have it, this one this isn't just a check-in because something happened in the case we have stayed up with for years this is a big deal laid it's a big one. deal
1: okay so um al, al nashiri is just to remind folks um the Um, Guantanamo detainee who has been charged for a very long time as basically the mastermind of the October 2000 bombing of the USS Cole. Um, The Nishiri case has been beset forever with a mess of Bobby jurisdictional questions, evidentiary questions, judicial ethics questions. I mean, this is the case where, you know, Judge Spath did his spathing. Um, right. F- folks might remember the 10 layer dip. Um, Bapping as a verb. I like yes. that. Well, you know, I don't think I, w- I think Michelle parody might've come up with that, not me. Um, but the, the, the sort of to make a very, very long story short, um, we were back to sort of square one and a half in the shiri on the question of whether his two statements he made while in custody in 2007 could be, used in his trial, could be used as the basis for other evidence admitted in his trial, etc. Everyone agrees, Bobby, at this point, or at least the government has stopped affirmatively disputing that statements Nishiri made while in CIA custody as part of the rendition detention interrogation program, while he's being tortured, those are not admissible. But the question is whether these more sanitized um, statements in 2007 could have been admissible. And this is a huge deal because like Bobby, like the, you know, Nishiri statements were a pretty significant part, we think, of what the government was planning as its case in chief. Um, Right. So anyway, so to make a very, very long.
0: And the uh, particular scenario is one that looms. The the whole clean team scenario is one that looms really large, frankly, uh, potentially across other cases well right. so
1: I so we'll, we'll come back to that right but so, so yeah right so this question of whether um the text of the military commissions act and the rules for military commissions and potentially ultimately the constitution although uh, you know that we never got to that here yeah. whether we, that prohibits
0: we tell, we tell to insulate yes. this from ongoing yes uh, risk of reversal to site
1: right. so the question is whether those permit the use and reliance on these kinds of sanitized you know Post-torture statements. Anyway, so in a lengthy ruling that was publicly released last week, um, the judge currently presiding over the Nishiri case, judge um, Army Colonel Acosta, um, uh, said no um, and said, actually, these statements cannot be admitted under the governing statutory and rule framework um, because they are, you know, even if they're not produced by torture, they are derived from torture. Insofar as, you know, Nishiri was not in a position to meaningfully understand that, you know, basically Nishiri had been conditioned to respond to questions from interrogators. And so the fact that he was no longer being tortured did not, uh, did not remove, did not sort of, you know, uh, um, reset to zero, right, the um, cumulative impact on him and his volition of his prior mistreatment in CIA custody.
0: Is it fair to say that what's going on here is a line being drawn limiting the reach of the clean team, clean team concept such that the, uh, particular fact pattern here, especially it's long-term custodial context, uh, basically saying that there's, there's almost no way to clean away the taint.
1: Yes. Yes. And, and so, so I want to I mean, I, I get to sort of why this is such a big deal, um, right? But like it, if Acosta is right, and I think his reading of the relevant legal authorities is pretty persuasive, that's an enormous deal, Bobby, not just in this case, because there goes some of the government's most important you know, direct evidence against Nashiri. Bobby, it's an enormous deal in the 9-11 case. Um, right now, now Acosta is not the judge in the 9-11 case, right? One trial court does not bind another trial court, but, you know, the sort of the optics of like the, his analysis is going to be, I think, fairly persuasive. Um, and, and indeed, if there is a split, that's only going to exacerbate and accelerate the sort of the dispute to the DC circuit. So, you know, there's a lot of reason to believe that this is going to have massive implications not just for the government's ability to successfully prosecute Al-Nashiri, but for the government's ability to successfully prosecute at least some of the 9-11
0: defendants as well. So I think that's right. There there's a separate question, and I'm in no position to know the answer to this. You might have a better grip on this than me. Do you think that custodial inculpatory statements are as central for Ben al and and others and KSM in those cases as they are here for Nishiri? I you know I think
1: the short version is probably not to the exact same extent. I mean they are you know my admittedly outsider sense of how the government's cases are structured. Based on what's public, is that these statements were a much, were an even bigger deal in the Shiri than in the 9-11 case, and indeed that it varies somewhat even among the defendants in the nine eleven case, where you know there's different amounts of other sort of you know non uh, how do I say interrogation based evidence in those cases. But Bobby, my sense is that it's a big deal even then that 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 there's still you know significant evidence in the nine eleven case that would be vulnerable under the same theory.
0: I do think I share that sense that it's less central. If I had to bet right now, without you know remotely good information, I think that those cases are would remain quite viable even without yeah. those custodial statements. But obviously, it's a big deal. Yeah, it, it is certainly a lot tougher row to hoe if they end up with the same rule in those cases. That's going to overhang um, plea bargains in all these cases.
1: Well, and so so that – so this to me is really what I wanted to get to before we sort of, you know, uh, um, move on, which is it seems like – let's keep in mind why we're here, right? We are in this position in August of 2023 because, you know, the government now in its, what, fourth presidency, right, remains committed not just, Bobby, to the military commissions in the abstract but to capital prosecutions – of these cases. And, you know, we've talked about this before. I don't want to belabor the point, but like the fact that these are capital cases, right, radically increases the complexity and the sort of significance of the procedural and evidentiary questions in ways that just would not be true if they were not capital. And so, you know, it seems to me that like part of the issue here is that the government has for literally decades at this point, been trying to have its cake and eat it too, which is to sort of make no compromises, make no accommodations, you know, brook no sort of um, intermediate positions in an effort to try to basically preserve what is an increasingly fraught specter of capital military commissions that would survive on appeal.
0: Yeah, I, I guess I mean, I want to quibble a little bit about that <laughs> zero compromises. You know, there, there are you know, most notably, they're not actually, they've are not they never been pressing to introduce the actual coerced statements themselves. Well, I
1: mean, those are expressly prohibited by the text of the Military Commissions Act.
0: But now they are. But even early on when it was – actually, that's an interesting question. Do you recall? Before it was adjusted, had they clearly stated in the litigation that they were not going to put forward those statements? Or did they only take that position after the, the rules? I mean,
1: that would have been the 09 MCA. I don't remember when um, – I don't I don't have any memory of the Bush administration disavowing reliant but I you know that's a, that's 14 years ago at this well,
0: point point. and it's one of the preposterous aspects of this whole situation that we're trying to answer that that's an interesting and important question but it was 14 years ago at the, <laughs> at, the uh, at the least stats. yeah so geez but um, yeah. yeah
1: but but so I mean I I I, I you know I, we may disagree in so far as the sort of how you know whether it really is virtually no compromise versus whatever i think that's not a material point the i mean you may disagree that's not material but um but the larger thing to me bobby is like you know the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result right um at some point and i thought we've hit this point about 11 times by now even if you are you know, not squeamish about what happened to the detainees, even if you are committed to the project of the military commissions, like even if you think they're good policy, don't you have to confront the, you know, the evidence in front of your eyes that like there are other ways to do this at this point that like plea bargains are something that actually really ought to be talked about that, you know, the commissions may not actually be a viable long-term avenue for securing appellate proof convictions
0: the question of exactly what the off-ramp looks like because here we said decades into this project obviously is an off-ramp needed that to me is the the bedeviling question plea bargains is certainly something we know is in the offing has been in the offing for the 9-11 cases i don't recall hearing anything in the public record relating to nashiri in that prospect do you recall anything like that
1: um, no, um, and, and indeed, I mean one of the ironies now is that the plea bargains may increasingly be in the government's interest and not necessarily
0: in the defendant's interests. Um, well, but but if it if it could result in an actual release, I mean that's one of the funny things. But, right, that's it. the Lur- question yes. lurking in the background of all of this is yeah. the the critical duality of of Guantanamo scenarios. The baseline for everybody there is baseline enemy combatant military detention under color, the idea that the law of armed conflict continues to apply vis-a-vis United States versus Al Qaeda. Um, That hasn't been sort of tested in court as such of late as time continues to go by, but periodically we get check-ins on that. Um, The prosecution process is a layer on top of that, seeking certain results. Plea bargains have resulted in people leaving Guantanamo after a certain period of course that's happened with detention as well people have, have gotten out you know the vast majority of people who've ever left Guantanamo left despite not even have having been prosecuted not having a plea bargain but rather through other processes so it's not like the plea bargain is the only way out but one wonders whether there is a deal to be done it would have for anything touching the Cole case or the nine eleven m nine eleven case It's a little hard to see how the pathway towards someone being sent out of Guantanamo and into the custody, reliable or otherwise, of another country, how that path works. And I could be wrong. Have we had anyone connected to the coal case who's gone that path? I don't think so
1: no no i mean I, I mean i mean this is why we are where we are right i mean at, but but it seems like at some point and maybe an election year is not the time to do it but like you know we're into we're long past the time for second for for, for second best solutions i mean we're into like 43rd best solutions at this point and it just seems like a, you know the the obvious answer at least to me right is everyone gives up something right that the you know, the, the government gives up, you know, securing, the, the government gives up, you know, securing capital sentences, right? The government agrees to let at least some of these folks be repatriated before the term of their natural lives has ended, right? And the defendants in turn agree to plead guilty to offenses. I mean, I just, you know.
0: I, I don't see the government agreeing to, at least for any of the primary defendants in these two sets of cases,
1: um, but, the, but but then but then this is where we're going to be.
0: Th- yeah. I, I, I can absolutely see them taking capital punishment off the table and accepting a life sentence, but uh, with with the idea of an earlier release or any kind of mechanism for that or custody in a third country, um, I suspect that is the the holdup. But then,
1: at the, but 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 Bobby, at that point, if you're a defendant, why would you take the plea? Right. I mean, you know, if you look at the, I mean, if you're if you if you look at the commissions to this point, like, you know, you can't be especially worried that they're going to produce, you know, appellate proof capital convictions at this point.
0: Well, I think. And so and I think that is why we are where we are. I have the plea. And so everyone, everyone's uh, easiest course is to continue muddling along because muddling along is mostly the status quo year after year after year. Despite, you know, and I'm sure some people say like, well, actually, you know, I think they're building up towards something. Yes. That, that, thus has it always been in this process. <laughs> uh, we're, uh, uh, um, uh,
1: uh, we're, we're turning the corner.
0: <laughs> now it's about to go down. Yeah. Well, Wait
1: till next year. Isn't that the right? The, although at least for Brooklyn Dodgers fans, there finally was 1955.
0: There, uh, there could at some point presumably will be an actual trial but we'll see i mean i mean are you sure about that yeah. <laughs>
1: like what 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 are the what, what are the odds makers laying these days on on an actual trial in either of these cases
0: what's the, what's the uh, the classical paradox where uh, you can never reach the destination because uh, it's, it's one
1: of Z- Z- it's one of zeno's paradoxes yeah, you can only get halfway there
0: okay yeah so <laughs> i think we're a little bit living that
1: here. Uh, is it zeno's second paradox i'm trying to remember which one it was so, so cuz like zeno has like three paradoxes uh, I don't know. I look it up. I am looking it up, but I don't. As yeah, okay.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, this (sighs) is the only Guantanamo litigation activity we've got. Um, The DC Circuit has weighed down from on high, and Abulul. What now? Um, Yeah.
1: So Abulul is like you know the speaking of long running (laughs) military commission cases. so folks might remember that in roundabout 2016, back when Bobby and I still had our natural colored hair, um, I guess it is, I guess our, our gray is naturally gray. It's very naturally gray. Um, so um, Abelool ended up as the test case for the question of whether the military commissions could try offenses that are not generally accepted as international war crimes. And the D.C. Circuit, after twisting itself into a pretzel, said, you know, sort of, maybe, <laughs> um, and basically um, upheld, albeit on incredibly narrow grounds, Al Albalul's conviction for the crime of inchoate conspiracy. But Bobby, as you might remember, um, vacated his convictions for solicitation and providing material support to terrorism. Um, this, believe it or not, is the appeal from the Court of Military Commission Reviews Refusal on remand, right, to require resentencing in light of the restructuring on appeal of Al Balul's conviction.
0: How long ago was that?
1: <laughs> so, the on-bonk DC Circuit decision, I believe, was in 2016. I believe it was seven years ago.
0: And then, um, how long since CMCR? Ooh, that's a good question.
1: Man, see, I should have, this is, this is what happens when you ask me questions. Super recently. The CMCR ruled in, gosh, 2019? Oof. Um, Oh, and then there was an appeal, right, sorry. Then there was an appeal to the DC Circuit from the CMCR's resentencing decision, right, Um, where the DC Circuit in 2020 vacated part of, you know, vacated the CMCR's decision because they said that the CMCR's analysis had been incorrect. Right, of whether Balul is entitled to resentencing. So they remanded to the CMCR in 2020, quote, for the CMCR to redetermine the effect of any of the two vacatures on sentencing under the appropriate harmless error standard, right? And then Balul had sought certiorari from that. And then in 2022, the CMCR finally reaffirmed Belul's life sentence under the correct standard. And this is what came back from that. Man. So I, just, I just want i just want to remind folks because this is this is one of my hobby horses and i was i was actually talking to a former Tatal clerk about not no not to a former griffith clerk about this a couple weeks ago um so back in 2016 at the same time the dc circuit was dealing with Bilool, it was also deciding in al-nishiri 2 i think bobby i've lost track of my roman numerals at this point um It was deciding, it held, that the civilian courts couldn't hear, right, a pretrial collateral attack on the jurisdiction of the Guantanamo Military Commissions. Um, And it was a two-to-one panel decision with Judge Griffith writing for the majority and Judge Tatel in dissent. And one of the things that Judge Griffith had said toward the end of his opinion was he had sort of poo-pooed the suggestion by Al-Nashiri's lawyers that, like, you know, the earliest there could be a trial in Al nashiris case might be 2024. And so by abstaining in 2016, the DC Circuit was, you know, not just sort of showing proper deference to a coordinate legal system. It was actually like, you know, really prejudicing the ability to have any resolution of these cases. And, you know, there's a, there, I think there's a, a passage in the Griffith opinion that he probably thinks is unfortunate today, where he says, you know, eh, we have no real evidence to suggest that, like, 2024 is a realistic assessment. Bobby, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's now August 21st, 2023. And Griffith was right. 2024 is not remotely realistic. Um,
0: yeah. <laughs> He's just, it's just in the wrong direction. <laughs> you know, the over-under idea very yeah, know be very hard to try i just
1: want to say i am not like i am i am not prophetic i get a lot of things wrong and if you went back and listened to old episodes of this podcast you'd find out just how much but one thing i think i've been ruthlessly right about like all along is all of these projections for when these cases would ever get to trial have all been like preposterous pipe dreams yeah
0: i i think a while back we've put some predictions out there about about like the 9-11 90s. trial yeah and i think we tried to reach real far
1: like out 2028 there. i think we, i i recall vaguely like something like a 2028 like supreme court denial of certiorari on the direct appeal of the conviction
0: oh honestly right now that sounds way too soon oh way too soon i mean 2030s for sure for whatever the finale Yeah. You know.
1: uh, what what's going to happen first trump's trial date or dot dot <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> it, i think well we have we have it depends on which one which trial
1: so speaking, of, speaking of should we talk briefly about georgia
0: yeah let's pivot we can come back to shamari let's let's uh let's journey uh north to trumplandia and in this case uh, the manifestation of trumplandia in georgia we have our first state court indictment um uh, steve there's there's obviously we we could go way into the weeds on the particulars there's a fair amount of overlap but also some interesting distinctions comparing this to the uh, special counsel's uh, indictment secured in DC, which we talked about in great detail. So is it fair to say that we have uh, a much, well, we obviously have a much larger set of named Mm co-conspirators. And Or 18 alongside Trump. Including some ones we'll talk about in a moment when we get to the removal issue, since this is (laughs) in state court, but may not stay there long. In terms of the offenses charge, the big flashy thing here is that the concept of RICO, RICO's an acronym. RICO.
1: RICO,
0: Pronounce it RICO. RICO's an acronym standing for Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act. started as a federal statute and now there's state-level RICO statutes. Um,
1: Bobby, do you do you know the enterprising young U.S. attorney who was actually instrumental in expanding the sort of the use and, and scope of RICO?
0: Well, I want to speculate here. <laughs> don't told me Rudolph Giuliani. That's the one. Interesting. I actually don't know anything about it. I'm just guessing and I apparently got it right. Um, I'll be interested to know more about I assume he used that in... Mafia trials in
1: New um, area? And a whole bunch. Of, I mean, he was very... When he when 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 Giuliani, you know, long before he was the mayor of New York, he was the U.S. attorney for the Southern District. And he really made his bones on very aggressive uses of the RICO. I mean, the RICO statue, I think, only dates like 74, Bobby, something like that. Um,
0: and we, Giuliani... Yeah. I'm sorry. Correct. No, please. No,
1: and Giuliani just was instrumental in the 80s in really like aggressive, expansive use of the RICO statute, Bobby, not just in mob cases. I mean, in in cases that had nothing to do with what we might think of as conventional racketeering.
0: Um, I think that kind of gets at the key question or the the key interesting thing about RICO. Um, It is a way of trying to get at um, organized criminal activity that goes beyond in, in subtle and complex, but important ways uh the run-of-the-mill concept of conspiracy, which on a recent show when we broke down the Trump indictment, we talked about conspiracy liability. It it's a little I've always struggled actually to articulate this one well. I kind of pride myself on being up uh, being able to explain these concepts. I, I find it hard to sort of capture in a layperson-friendly way the extent to which RICO is is sort of different from run-of-the-mill conspiracy. Steve, do you think it's fair to say that if if Conspiracy, criminal conspiracy, in general, is the meeting of the minds between two or more people to commit some to be determined criminal act. But you, you know the type of crime; you just don't the particulars. Um, and it's that kind of prevention-oriented or group-oriented liability. The deal with RICO is that you're able to bring in a wider range of associated yeah. activities. Drawing on, if, if, if you can make the case that there is an organization, then you can put as evidence in front of the jury lots and lots of different bits and pieces that may not all involve the same people in a way that would be much more difficult to do with an ordinary conspiracy charge. Is that fair? I mean, yes, I always felt like that's kind of the the special bite, like why is it a powerful tool? And
1: and at least at the federal, I, I am not an expert on Georgia RICO, but at least at the federal level, the compromise is that that sort of relaxed threshold, right? The trade-off is that the underlying predicate offenses are narrower, right? That like, that it's a more specific list of, indeed, the federal RICO statute lists, right, all of the crimes that count as predicate offenses under RICO, right? Um, I I think, I don't know if he coined the term Bobby or if he just popularized it, but when he was a professor before he was a judge, Jerry Lynch, I think, is the one, right, who standardized the term that Rico is the crime of being a criminal. Um, that's
0: interesting. You know, that's that's actually a, a perfect segue to a point I want to make here for, for listeners who are not lawyers, or, or for the lawyers as well, but especially those- Or for who lawyers like, who are not listeners. <laughs> that's a very large crew. Um <laughs> For those who are interested in these legal topics in part for sort of what they bespeak about what the power of government can and can't do, which is sort of the the essence of the business, um, I would encourage you to think of our conversations that touch on conspiracy and RICO as a variant of conspiracy um, under the heading of preventive charging and collective charging. And these are both types of liability that are variations from the baseline norm of our system, which is individual charges for what we can show you have done. Legal systems, including ours, routinely extend liability in various forms, both in the prevention direction, so backwards in time, insert here Philip K. Dick, Minority Report, or the Tom Cruise version if you prefer, Um, and, and interesting questions about the wisdom, uh, the trade-offs involved in prevention-oriented charging, that's not really the interesting thing about all the Trump cases, of course, here. We're talking more about the organizational dimension, where you spread the net a little bit more widely and get away from the narrow focus on the one person, the one act, etc. cetera. And, and RICO, in that sense, is interesting. It's not more prevention-oriented than a regular conspiracy charge. It is more... Uh, capacious if you will in 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 a way that's not unlike the way that some of the material support type concepts can be capacious as well anyways um so georgia's got a particularly broad variant of the general rico concept there's lots of things you can hook in and so this indictment has well it's got a lot of things in there in addition
1: lots of things all the things
0: all the things one of the things is mark meadows the former chief of staff who is widely perceived to have cooperated and have an, and has immunity we we think, right at the federal level um, I think. is indicted here yes and he very promptly moved like really quickly moved to have the case removed it's
1: and dismissed and then he and then he moved in the district court to dismiss it
0: exactly so so to to kind of make clear a, a fundamental point no matter what this is a Georgia state law criminal prosecution the removal isn't changing it and making it a federal prosecution. Correct. The removal, if it sticks, would make sure that the same DA is prosecuting the same charges, but before a federal judge and with the and, and a jury,
1: and 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 a, and a jury pool from the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Georgia, as opposed to Fulton County Superior Court.
0: Yeah, you know, I on that. I think it was maybe Lawfare Podcast. Somebody made the observation that the particular rules in Northern District of Georgia were such that you almost certainly would get a, uh, a demographically, you know, in all senses of politics and everything else, pretty comparable jury pool. So it may not be that the jury- uh, Right.
1: Because yeah. the Northern District is subdivided into divisions, and the division yeah. that encompasses Atlanta is pretty close, I think- Maybe there's one extra county in there, like the there's County.
0: There's not too much reason to think you are you would be having a big impact on jury. So this is really more about just not being in the state court system, so, having right. a judge presiding.
1: So let's layer this. So, so one of the things that complicates this is that, Bobby, there's just not a lot of history of – there are plenty of examples of, of state criminal prosecutions – being removed under the federal officer removal statute, there are very few of multiple defendant cases, right? Like those cases are usually like a single officer who's off on like a frolic or detour. Mm. So the federal officer removal statute has two triggers, right? Trigger number one is that the underlying suit has to relate to the officer's performance of his duties, um, right? That's in the statute is twenty eight U S C fourteen forty two a one. Um, This is, you know, what does relate to mean? So there's a case, Bobby, from 1969 called Willingham versus Morgan, where the Supreme Court adopted a pretty capacious definition of relates to, Um, right? Basically, to mean, like, you know, was it sort of, not that it had to be Bobby formally part of your duties, right? But that you were on the job, it's almost scope of employment, like you were on the job when the thing happened,
0: right? In Meadows' case. Yes. Okay, so... We, we have a, at least a couple of things. One, Wait, there, Can I have...
1: add one caveat, though? Oh, yeah, please, please. Sorry, just really quickly before we get to Meadows, because I want to get to Meadows. But in footnote four of the majority opinion in Willingham, and I wrote about this, by the way, for my newsletter today, one first, check it out, um, Justice Marshall says, the standard might require a tighter connection in criminal cases.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, and so this is where it's very interesting. So his role, chief of yes. staff,
1: Right, his in, duties are doing Trump's bidding.
0: Well, his duties certainly include arranging things that the president has to be arranged in the in the yes. mundane sense of. Right. Okay, I want a call place to the Georgia Secretary of State. Right. So, Meadows, so, right, so Meadows, I'm sorry. So, insofar as it's the that the infamous call to Raffens, is it Raffensburger? Yeah. Yeah. It as far as like Meadows having arranged that call. Whatever one makes of the the purposes et cetera of the call seems duties it seems related to, to his that duties. That wasn't yeah that that wasn't part of his right. And so
1: defense. no no so so I actually think that of, it's possible that of all nineteen defendants, Meadows has the strongest fourteen forty two a one argument.
0: Exactly my right. I actually think I think it's pretty clearly correct in, in his case.
1: But but so th- what? There's one more caveat though, which is so. And then t- uh, twenty years after Willingham in Mesa versus California, the Supreme Court says, and to avoid constitutional problems, you can't just be removing based on the fact that it was in the performance of your duties. You also have to assert a federal defense. Um, Which he right? now has. Right. Which Meadows now has. Meadows has asserted that his prosecution is barred by by what's called supremacy clause immunity. The notion that, like you know, the supremacy clause bars the imposition of state criminal liability for the performance of official federal functions.
0: And this is a sword that can cut both ways. Politically, of course, yes. as, as all these principles yes. can. It reminds me of when there was talk uh, many years ago. There was a sort of moment of anxiety about federal authority, I think it was in Central Texas, Steve, you may remember this, when there was talk about if any federal agents, you know, dare, you know, do this or that, they're going to be arrested by the local sheriff, um, some nonsense like that. And of course, the answer to that is like, well, you know, this is exactly why the principle of, of sovereign, uh, you know, a, a sovereign authority defense, supremacy clause defense, uh, has to have some role in a federalism yep. system, so that state-level officials cannot simply arrest and incarcerate, uh, federal officials.
1: Well, this is how, and this is how these two things, these two concepts fit together, right? The removal, which is how you get the case into federal court. And then the immunity, which is the substantive defense that, that controls whether the case can go forward.
0: Right. And so So, by by having, by having Meadows in the mix, by choosing to do that, which is not a choice that the special counsel made in the federal case, um, by having him as one of the defendants, it, it ensured there was a pretty good argument for removal. You know, maybe that doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things from a just a purely tactical perspective. But insofar as it was important to the DA to stay in state court, well, that was probably a mistake. I'd say. Well, except
1: before. so so except that, and here's where here's where I sort of you know sort of do a, a bit of a, sh- a shoulder shrug. Except so, Bobby, if this were a civil case, it would be clear from both the text of the statute and from decades of case law, that Meadows' notice of removal would be effective to remove the entire case against all 19 defendants. Um, There is no similar language to that effect when it comes to the removal of criminal cases. And there does not appear to be precedent, again, because there just haven't been that many multiple defendant examples. Bobby, there does not seem to be clear precedent for whether a removal by a single defendant in a multi-defendant prosecution operates to remove the entire case from state court to federal court.
0: So I, on this, this is a super interesting question, right? Are we, is this just Mark or is this the whole crew, including Trump?
1: Including, including by the way, inc- let's just say, including, Bobby, some defendants who no one would argue could have removed under 40, right? Defendants who, Bobby, were never federal officers and so therefore could not avail themselves of the federal officer removal statute on their own.
0: Yeah, I mean so as you say it's if it's civil no question yes if it's federal question certainly insofar as we don't know um how would if you were the judge yeah trying to figure out what to do with this if the uh defendants are all saying like of course we all have to come with you so and and the prosecutors. my my
1: answer my, my my gut as a civil procedure person is that it's all the same case or controversy for purposes of Article 3 of the Constitution. Yeah. Right? And so I would think that even though the statute isn't as clear, the same principle ought to hold. Um, but Bobby, the one the one additional complication, one place where the statute is clear, is in a criminal case as opposed to a civil case, removal does not actually operate to stay the state court proceedings. Um, right, that there is a that the statute's actually clear that state court proceedings can proceed while the validity of the removal is litigated in federal court.
0: So I guess um, a, a comity principle, yes. not yes. comity, a comity yes. principle, comity. given yes. the greater state interest in the prosecution and but perhaps to I, I, spur, I, yes. spur to quick decision making by the Article Three judge. But
1: I will just say, if I am, if I am Willis, if I'm the DA, like you know let's go to federal court and try the case there. I mean, like I, you know, I just, I, I would rather get past this than spend six to 12 months. So, fighting I would, I would over this.
0: exactly where you just went. As we've said repeatedly uh, in this context and in other ones, in any litigation involving Donald Trump, but certainly those taking place in the pendency of the campaign um, for those prosecuting time is of the essence in yep. a really serious way. Um, and so, it would probably be a big error to to get gummed up in pretrial litigation around this issue. If everyone else wants to go, and it looks like it's going to go to the federal court, that's where she should go. And,
1: and I mean, I just, I just, I, I, you know, I, I understand the arguments for why, you, like, it makes a lot of sense to me how you could argue that the non-federal officer defendants, right, have no basis for removing their case to federal court. I can see that argument. I just think that like. You know, why spend a year taking that all the way to the
0: Supreme Court? And with the high likelihood, the court will say, as in the civil context, right? The whole everyone goes. goes, yes. Now, here's an interesting one. So imagine the whole thing goes, and so we're six months into this, and then uh, either charges against Meadows are dropped, or there's a deal. And so Meadows, the only reason you're in federal court, he's out of the case, I think think it stays in the civil yeah. context. Yeah, I think yeah. It's, in the it's, civil
1: it's uh, context once it's proper once it's properly removed, yes, right? It stays removed.
0: Interesting. All right, um, um, yeah. Shall we a real quick yeah. note on Shamari?
1: Yes, so speaking of bizarre crazy procedural stuff. Um, so believe it or not, as we talk about recurring recur- recurring members, no, recurring sustaining members sustaining members right um so there is still a fairly significant civil suit arising out of abu Ghraib, abu Ghraib, the iraqi prison where there was a torture scandal in like 2005 and 2006 um right so the the lawsuit against um uh the sort of the the military contractors who are allegedly responsible for at least part of the torture at abu Ghraib. Um Bobby, it too is, is soldiering on. I actually, I went to look this up today. So do you, without looking, can you guess what the leading digit is in the docket number in this civil case?
0: Okay, so,
1: so. So for the non-lawyers out there, right? Docket numbers are the numerical designation that courts give to lawsuits as a way of sort of keeping track of them. And at least in federal <laughs> court, the norm is that the two leading digits before the first dash are the last two digits of the year in which the case was filed.
0: All right, 05.
1: Ooh, that, you were more aggressive. It's 08. Oh, man. It is well, an 08.
0: When you set up the question that way, I know I could yeah. go pretty low.
1: It is an 08 docket number. Um, amazing. And, and so anyway, so so what happened is the, the judge presiding over the case in the Eastern District of Virginia, Judge Leonie Brinkema, um, has now denied the latest motion to dismiss from the contractors Once again, right? um, So basically, every time Bobby, in recent years, the Supreme Court has had a decision about the Alien Tort Statute or the political question doctrine or extraterritoriality, the contractors have renewed their motions to dismiss and have said, "Well, you didn't dismiss last time, but in light of this further clarification by the Supreme Court, um, right?
0: So
1: so this is the twenty-first dispositive motion." that khaki has filed in this case. That's
0: um, That's got to be some kind of record.
1: I, I you know, it's pretty fracking impressive. Um, and it sounds like they're actually going to appeal again. So, I mean, why not? <laughs> but speaking of delay, right? You know, it will be old
0: and gray. Yeah, this is. Uh, it's really something.
1: Yep. Um, okay. Um, yeah, I do think we want
0: to on the serious stuff. Shall yeah, we? Shall should we, should we, should we, should we turn
1: to? The uh silo and our NFL preview?
0: Yes. Okay, I'm su- I uh those listening recently know that we we keep finding a uh lack of a meeting of the minds on fun things to that we've both watched. I mean I assume you still haven't seen either Barbie or Oppenheimer. Really. Saw Barbie. Okay. Wait, have we we haven't talked Barbie yet? We haven't talked we haven't Barbied. Okay, let Let's Barbie. Okay. Okay, and also that's the show title, two forty one. Let's Barbie. Let's
1: Barbie. <laughs> With an exclamation point, I hope. That's Barbie,
0: of course. Okay. Um, I'm just Ken. You, <laughs> um, where to begin? Now, you know my feeling about Oppenheimer was I kind of feel like I wish I hadn't heard lots and lots and lots of over-the-top good things about it because I th- I think it set it up towards hard to rise to the occasion. Do you feel like hearing lots and lots and lots about Barbie by the time you finally saw it? You know, did it it deliver on your expectations or was it disappointing or where were you?
1: It was definitely not disappointing. Um, You know, but I really enjoyed it. We took, it was, Karen and I took the girls. I think it was a little over the girls' heads. Um, You know, seven and five, I think might be a little young, although not like inappropriate. Like there was nothing, you know, age inappropriate about
0: it. I would go right over their heads.
1: Right. Um, It is, it is a, 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 it is a strange movie um, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thought it was a lot of fun.
0: You know, I actually think my review would be almost identical to what you said. If the key points are super enjoyable, it's just, it, was just, it was a really fun and entertaining movie experience. It is a little strange, and I think the strangeness is just kind of unavoidable. I mean, the whole idea of doing the movie is caught up in right. these ultimately irreconcilable tensions between, on one hand... It's a brand that has brought loads and loads and loads of joy and 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 fantasy-based, you know, sort of imagination prompting, um, wonderful happiness for lots of children over decades and decades. On the other hand, it's also clearly got these, you know, deep deeply symbolic of all the, the sort of the body shaming and the patriarchy. Well, no, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the body shaming and the, the impossible um, sort of standards for women that, that are bound up inextricably with it too. And so the movie tries to wrestle with that, tries to be serious about it. That's kind of a no win task. He kind of tries to have it both ways. And I don't think that's, there's, there's almost no satisfying people. You're either going to feel like you're, um you know not giving due to the to the happiness it's brought to children over time or you're not giving due to the uh, the body image issues that right, it's, the cost you know right. yeah exactly and did the yeah. best they could it's you know eh, that's that's, that's like, right that that part's not very fun right like no one's really yes. enjoying that part they might be satisfied or not by what they hear
1: right like america like america ferrera's monologue
0: not the most fun um right. and, but but and, but powerful yeah, I mean, look, I, I think that the, the problem I have with it, if I had a problem, and I, I thought it was great, I enjoyed it. Yeah, um, me too. I, I thought that it was a disappointment that the way they were – so they set up this tension, and they really build up to this point. It's like, so what's the new post-Ken you know Ken Takeover world going to be? And I was kind of looking for a, maybe a little bit more sense of creativity and how they depicted what their the Barbie land is going to be like at that point. Uh, it, it really felt like they were just kind of worn out with the plot development and just kind of wrap it up real quick. The women are in charge we're kind of reversing the course, and it's all good um you know, I, mean, I have I mean, I probably I, done something more creative and more fun than that
1: so so to i mean I, I i this is coming across less in less like effusive than I meant it to because I actually thought the movie was exceptional, right There's so much in it like it is doing so many different things in almost every moment that it's almost like, like I actually kind of want to see it again. Cause I feel like I missed so much the first time. Right. And it's, it's like, it,
0: is it, is it possible that it's meant to be the movie in that sense is like Barbie herself it's supposed to be everything to all people. And it's inherently going to be unsatisfying, but you're going to be entertained.
1: Wait, I want to read you a text I just got from Karen um karen who's in the next room just texted me are y'all seriously talking about barbie like anyone cares what two middle-aged white guys think a month after it came out question mark lol yes. <laughs> I,
0: I reject the idea that i'm not allowed to have voice by dint of my age gender skin color or any other category that's one of the points of the movie is we can all play me. Eh. I'm just going
1: to go with, you know, I love that the movie also raises the profile of Closer to Fine and Indigo Girls.
0: Oh, that is, that is, I knew you, when I saw that, I knew it. Right I'm going to say the, uh, the Battle of the Kins. Yes. That was an extraordinary segment.
1: Um, okay. Before we get in any more trouble, I think we should move on to Silo.
0: Okay. Silo is, you, you're liking it?
1: I think we're allowed to talk about Silo. Um, that, yes. Yes. So I, I, I finished the first season of Silo and really, really enjoyed it. Um, I, I thought, I mean, there are some pretty significant plot holes that I, I don't know if the books, you've read the books, I haven't. And so maybe the books deal with some of these plot holes. Um, but I thought it was interesting. Um, even as it is adhering to the three laws of science fiction, I still thought it had some novel takes on it. You know, I'm just Bobby, I am I am I am the I am the target consumer for like post apocalyptic dystopian science fiction. That's not fantasy, right? That's actually like, you know, world you know, theory, you know, plausible, conceivable construct.
0: Like same, no, no magic, no right. no non scientific right.
1: And my one my one insight was the second that I saw the number eighteen on the mayor's keychain, I was like, Oh, there are a whole bunch of silos, aren't there?
0: Yeah. (laughs) I thought uh, Tim Robbins was quite good in that role. So, you know, the book series is is sort of legendary because Hugh Howey self-published originally. I don't know who has that's pretty cool. um, So the original book is Wool and, uh, you know, the first for the cleaning. And and it's one of those ones, if you're like me and, you know, I I go into bookstores every chance I get and and I'll at least make a pass through the the sci-fi fancy area, looking at the shelves, and you'll see certain ones where at, a, at an amazing bookstore like Book People here in Austin, where it's where it's well curated. Um, invariably, there's this the row on the shelf where the the employees have said like, "Hey, you know, please check this out," and so wool would always be highlighted. Years went by, and I'd notice it. Finally, I was like, you know, I, I should give this a try. It, 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 there must be something to it. Um, it is a really excellent entry into that genre that you just described. Um, in many, many ways, it's true to the form. And so for those who really prefer only to read stuff that subverts form, eh, you know, you're not going to like it that much, perhaps, because it's, it's conventional in that sense. Um, but if instead what you like is uh, good characterization, plausible dialogue, and intricate and well-thought-out long-term plotting that progressively unveils... An interesting story that that goes further than you think it's going to over the course of books it, yeah there's maybe some stuff you say is predictable but there's a lot that will you know excite you as you go i think it's excellent excellent and so when when i saw they were turning into a tv series i was thrilled worried that they weren't going to budget it right to make it nice i thought they did a nice job of spending enough to where the environment felt real real right yeah, did you yeah
1: tell- it felt real yeah, I mean that. That's why I mean it was. It really was. That's why it was like the the sort of the original Total Recall was the sort of the the aesthetic to me. Like I don't know if that was a deliberate thing or if it's just like how it felt to me. But yeah, something sort of grungy future ick. It's. Um,
0: uh, I'd love to know from from the directors and, and the producers. You know, where they going for that? Because certainly, you know, it's a nice kind of echo. Because right. you're underground. So anger so
1: here 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 the the biggest sort of. MacGuffin or the biggest unexplained here's the thing I kept coming back to though I
0: won't, so, I won't give anything away but I will listen intently
1: no so the question is whether the books are, are better on this um, they don't know anything about their history right they know nothing about where they come from they know nothing presumably like they're they're deliberately like sort of kept in the dark about anything they might try to figure and indeed curiosity is discouraged right about sort of their how they got into the silo like what happened right okay then here's my question. How do doctors know how to be doctors, right? How do IT people know how to be IT people, right? How, like, in the, in the secret janitorial closet where they have all of the TV screens, right, how are they ever able to update the technology that they're using to keep track of everybody if they're not, if they're not allowed to have, like, knowledge of things past?
0: Well, wouldn't it be... Okay, so take the medical case isn't it enough to say that it gets passed from generation to generation? And the book explains a lot more about the the locked in career pathways. It it does go into a lot of details you might imagine about, you know, how how do you go from being a a child to eventually having an apprenticeship and then a trade? So certainly Howie was trying to to answer that question by saying, you know, there's not a lot going on in the silos. So kind of all you do as you eventually grow up is you train to know everything that the person before you knew, so you can carry on the job. Um, now we all know principles of entropy would probably kick in in a way that would that's, actually in, that's, in real my, world, that's would be a real problem right. here. That
1: but that's my point, right? Which is entropy. It seems like entropy would therefore be deeply destructive to the technical capacity that the different experts all seem to possess.
0: Yeah, I just think that it's it's in it's an unavoidable part of the, the the fundamentals of the plot framework that you just have to accept that. The engineers could keep this thing going i mean they and i think in fairness both the original book and in the show they they try to show you like it is it is poised to collapse at any time they're always kind of on the edge but but the whole thing won't work if it actually does and so therefore entropy can't quite have its full due um i think some of the casting was really really great Yes, Uh, sims is awesome yeah,
1: uh, Commons, Greatest Sims. Um, oh, he's so—he is especially good.
0: Yeah. He's kind of a scene stealer.
1: I, I love—I mean, I love David Oyelowo as as Holston.
0: Yeah, that was a really nice, really nice casting. Um, yeah. Julia Nichols, of course, is of course know, incredible. At everything. If,
1: I, I will if anything, casting Tim Robbins as Bernard m- m- to me, actually, like you know how in Law and Order when there's a guest star, yeah, like you know, know that they're going to be the it, suspect. Yeah right? Like yeah. casting Tim Robbins as Bernard, like, cause in the early episodes, I don't know if this is true in the book, but in the early episodes, Bernard has like a marginal role and you're like, yeah, Tim Robbins is here for a reason.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, okay. So I was going to quibble with you, but you just persuaded me. So I liked him, but, but I knew from the very beginning, everything that's going to happen. So of course I'm like, Oh, awesome. Tim Robbins and his sort of creepy, like, is, wait, is he likable? Is he not likable? Kind of vibe. I was like, this is perfect for Bernard. It's really gonna screw up the the novice viewer's ability to know what's happening here. But it hadn't dawned on me that if you hadn't read the book, right. then it's like, well, wait a minute, did he really just take a bit part? That seems a little bit likely to turn into more than a bit part.
1: Right. Um, do the books so did the books end where season one does, or do the books keep going?
0: Um, you know, it's hard for me to remember the division cause I read them all back to back. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, I, I will at least say it's at least close. There's, I'm not going to give anything away, but there's certainly some stuff that I would describe as transitional to the next major phase in the story.
1: I guess, I mean, do you remember, any, like, let me just ask you this. Do you remember anything from after when Juliet,
0: um, Cleans? I I certainly do, but I can't remember if that was the break point between uh, the first and second books or not. Okay. Yeah, but but it was the right break point for the TV show. Oh, no doubt, no doubt. Now, were you surprised? What did you think? Part of what's so delicious about it, and I think makes Howie so brilliant for conceiving this, it's like the story could go kind of either way. Like, what is really out there? Is it is it as shown? Is it not as shown? Which is it? And like, what would be the significance of it? And this, I think the showrunners did a nice job of having you lean gradually and imperceptibly moving towards, well, it must be that it's a fake. It's actually paradise, but they give you a few clues. The birds flying by are always the same birds flying by when you get these glimpses of the true world.
1: But if you don't know what birds are,
0: Again, right? I mean,
1: like it's back yeah, to maybe, what's—that's
0: maybe what you think's out there. Yeah,
1: but, but right, it's back to what's his name—the guy who sits up in the cafeteria every night and realizes that there are stars.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that was pretty interesting. So, well, I, I will make no comments further. Less. Okay. I guess. I guess. I guess. I
1: guess. I have to read the books. I, I mean, I'm going. I have a long trip. I'm going to Oxford next week, so I have a long trip coming it, up.
0: It, it, you know what? I would actually. I recommend you know go audio and and do the whole the whole series and get the full version because it'll add so much detail the show just can't give you and then you'll enjoy the show more i
1: like
0: Uh, it i will say this i have this general theory about dystopias and things like this Um, most of the fun is in the world building yes initial like oh no as the hero eventually figures out that all's not as it seems um none of them you, you can't land the plane very effectively. I think this one's way better than most in in terms of just staying pretty good and interesting the whole way. It definitely reads as if, and I don't know if this is true or not, I'm sure he said in interviews, but it reads like he knew where he was going the whole time. Yeah. And uh, that's a nice
1: change. From that's not quite, the George, not quite the George R. R. Martin approach. Yeah.
0: Which reminds me, apparently there's like some sort of effort underway to, to crowdfund a documentary about the making of Lost <laughs> and it's called get, Getting Lost now I have no idea if this is a credible effort or not but I heard that and and while we're on the topic of things that set up a delicious what is happening here story only to find out they, ah, they don't really know they're going to figure it out and then kind of just end it mm, still mad about that one
1: well maybe we should save our NFL preview for next time
0: yeah I think so
1: um, are we good
0: with 241 Let's Barbie Let's Barbie um, or, or, or to be Let's Beach
1: no let's you oh barbie. Yeah. let's barbie let's beach might be too obscure
0: yeah um i do like turning beach into a verb
1: yes um i think we'll probably not record next week because i'm going to be six hours ahead of you
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well,
1: have um, fun i'm because i'm excited this is gonna be a, a fun trip yeah
0: um
1: and there's a wagamama in oxford which is you know very important to me
0: yeah <laughs> it, oxford's awesome you're gonna have a great time
1: um I've only so I've been there once before but it was only for an afternoon. It was an afternoon in August 2003 that was at least to that point the hottest day in the history of Oxford.
0: Oh heavens. Well So I I, up there. I
1: I I think I won't have this problem. It's supposed to be 68 there next Wednesday. Oh, Bless you. Or as the Brits would say what what is that? 15, 17 16?
0: <laughs> I will say like one of my one of my favorite memories so for many years we hosted a transatlantic dialogue event yep. laws of war. Um, and every year I'd go over there and, and, uh, my, my buddy Dapo Conde, who's this amazing professor at Oxford, super cool guy. Um, you know, he'd arrange for all the visiting faculty to be put up in different places. And you know how it is at Oxford and Cambridge, it's like there's some really historic stuff. And then there's some like, really, it looks like it was built in the seventies stuff. And you just never knew what you were going to get. And then there was this one year where they put me up. I, I cannot remember which building I was in It was one of the older buildings and I was in an attic room. It had these windows wide out wide open over the fields and a big thunderstorm rolled in that night and I just sat in the window watching it rolling in and it was it was a very special night. Like certain that's times really cool. things kind of come together in a way that have a little magic to them.
1: Interesting. So I'm I'm also staying they're they're putting us up in Merton College and, and so maybe maybe we'll get a similar experience. Wait, by know, the way, if there are listeners who have Oxford recommendations, send them my way, please. I'll have, like have a little saying, bit of time to set, be on my own.
0: You know what? I think actually that, I think I was in Merton. Wow. Look and at us. Map, a map. Yeah. Cause it's right over the field. You're near that little.
1: Yeah. So, so, so what you're saying is I should ask for an attic room with windows that look out on, on thunderstorms.
0: I would. Okay. So I'm looking at the map now. and trying to remember it was definitely Merton college. I was in a top level room above somewhere above the quad on the fellows quad. Um, and it was south-facing towards the field. So, hey, maybe they'll stick you in there. That'd be pretty funny.
1: That'd be cool. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, he is at NSL Podcast. I am at – no, you're not at NSL. You're at Bobby Chesney. <laughs> we are at NSL Podcast. He is at Bobby Chesney. I am a Steve underscore Vladik.
0: And that's um, true on both Twitter X and Threads.
1: And Threads. Um, and happy first day, first week of school to those who celebrate.
0: Um, And to everybody else, stay safe out there. Adios.